Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series, I'm exploring the Lancashire Textile Gallery, a new online resource that brings together objects and artefacts held by museums, archives and manufacturers from across the county. I'll be speaking to curators, artists, enthusiasts and researchers about everything from the exquisitely detailed medieval embroidery known as Opus Anglicanum to costumes worn by visitors to Blackpool's Pleasure Beach in the 1930s. I'm heading to Chorley for this episode, more specifically to Astley Hall, a museum and art gallery housed within a Grade 1 listed historic house. One of the treasures that can be found within its walls is a set of four sumptuous and enormous mid-17th century tapestries. These depict the mythological tale of Jason and the Golden Fleece. I talked to Amy Dernerley and Jane Warburton Ball from Astley Hall and conservator Alison Lister to find out more. So I'm Amy, I'm the curator at Astley Hall Museum and Art Gallery and South Ribble Museum and I'm responsible for managing and caring for the collections housed within those buildings and also interpreting them and engaging visitors with their fascinating and beautiful stories. Hello, I'm Jane. I've been a member of the Friends of Astley Hall for a good 20 years now and have been the chair for the last few years as well. Our main remit as an organisation is fundraising uh, and from that we uh, support restoration and conservation. My name's Alison Lister. I'm the owner of Textile Conservation Limited, which is an independent conservation studio based in Bristol, providing conservation services to a wide range of heritage organisations and individuals, including museums, historic houses, community groups, collectors and private owners. Lovely. Thanks all so much. Um, So, Amy, can you tell me a bit about the history of Astley Hall? I can, yeah. So it's a small gentry house in Lancashire and it was built for a gentleman called Robert Charnock around the the time of 1578. They were a local landowning family and had been in the area from around the 12th century. And Astley Hall is believed to have taken its name from the words East Lee, which means lands lying to the east. So there's never been any Astleys as such living there. Um, The hall passed through the Charnock family and it's had various extensions throughout the ages. So there was significant extensions in the early 17th century. Um, which gives us this beautiful brick um, facade that we we see today. And um, as the hall was passed through the Charnocks, there was um, a single heiress that inherited the hall called Margaret Charnock, and she married Richard Brooke. He brought his father with him, Sir Peter Brooke, um, to live at the hall, and dissatisfied with the scheme there, they remodelled the entire interior um, to create these ornate, plaster ceilings that are quite rare um, and the plaster ceilings are something that I, I don't know there's not many others around and it's something that I'd say um, are quite important for the hall and its collection. Around the same time the tapestries um, came to the hall so that's why I've gone into a little bit more detail there um, and then the hall was passed through the Brooke family until um, it reached another lady called Susanna Brooke 
again, she was heiress um, and she married Thomas Turner Parker and then Sir Henry Philip Horton. So these are all notable families from around the area at the time. Um, they remodelled the hall on the East Wing at that point. This was around the early 19th century. And by the early 20th century, the hall had passed to a nephew um, called Reginald Arthur Tatton. And he was responsible for giving the hall to the people of Chorley as a memorial to the men who lost their lives in the First World War. And from that point onwards, the hall has been a museum and art gallery. And we've been open ever since. Lovely. And what kind of things can people see if they come to visit Astley Hall besides the tapestries, which I want to hear a lot about shortly? Yeah, so the hall has a really um, amazing collection of English oak furniture, um, paintings, lots of things that came from the family who lived there. And I think it's quite unique in that it's ended up with this collection that came from the families. Um, so, um, yeah, furniture tapestries, paintings, um, ceramics. So as the 20th century went on, um, subsequent members of the family donated other items. So we've got this really um, fantastic Leedsware collection. Um, and yeah, from sort of the, from that time onwards, other people from Charlie have donated objects and social history items. So yeah, we've got a real mix of objects and collections. <laughs> And how did the tapestries initially come to Astley Hall? So we think they were purchased for Margaret Chanock and Richard Brooke, who married in the mid 17th century. Um, and we think they were purchased to complement the remodelling of the interior at that point. So can you tell me a little bit about the history of these tapestries? Do we know anything about how they would have been commissioned? Because they weren't made in the UK, is that correct? It is, yeah. So they came from uh, Brussels and that was um, a, a well-known place where tapestries came from at that time. I'm sh I think Alison might have some more to add here as well on, on where tapestries have come from. Fantastic. Alison, tell me a bit more about what you know about these tapestries. Like, what do you think the commissioning process would have been? They were made in Brussels. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Um, well, um, as Amy said, Brussels um, was a very important centre for tapestry weaving in the 17th century um, and prior to that and after that. And there were many, many workshops producing tapestries commissioned by clients from all, all parts of Europe. Um, and they would have produced tapestries in a, in a, a variety of grades, um, some quite simple, uh, a, a limited range of colours, a limited uh, quality of design, others very, very much more expensive, very much more detailed. And these tapestries at Asley Hall are somewhere in the middle in terms of quality of design and the, um, the range of colours used and the detail within the design. Um, they would have been woven by a team of weavers who were uh, men um, at that point. Women were involved sometimes in the the lining afterwards, but mostly all the weaving was done by men. Um, they would have worked together, possibly across a whole set of tapestries at one time, and it would have been months, if not years of work. Um, so tapestries represent a very extensive investment in terms of time and money and energy and, and skill. 
Um, and I don't know whether I don't know whether the house actually commissioned them. Often um, the tapestries were were bought secondhand, uh, perhaps commissioned by somebody else, and then uh, when they sold them on, other other historic houses acquired them. I think without any documentation, we can't be sure whether it was actually the the family at Astley Hall that that commissioned them. But uh, they would have been made relatively. Um, uh, close to the date of, of acquisition. So certainly within the 17th century, but they could have already been used by somebody else or maybe ordered by somebody else and purchased by the family at a later date. Can you describe the story behind these tapestries? Like what story are they telling? Um, so the tapestries uh, depict the story of Jason and the Golden Fleece, which is part of the myth of Jason and the Argonauts. And uh, it, it tells the story of Jason being set out on a quest or sent out on a quest to um, acquire the golden fleece, which is the fleece of a, uh, a ram uh, of a gold color. And he, he is depicted um, at, at various key points in the story. So there are four scenes the largest tapestry actually depicts one of the last scenes of the story where he has the, the golden fleece and he has brought it back to the king who required him to search for it. Uh, the And I'm going to go backwards a little bit, I'm afraid. Um, the scene before that is a, a key one in the story, which is where Jason is required to, first of all, plough a field uh, using two bulls who breathe fire and also to steal the um the fleece that is guarded by a sleeping dragon so actually that smallest tapestry has a, a huge amount of key detail from the actual story of jason the tapestry that comes before that is jason being given um a potion by the woman who eventually becomes his wife medea and she gives it to him in order to uh, he can coat his skin and his armour to prevent him being burned by the fire-breathing bulls. And possibly what is the first in the set, although it's not entirely clear, is Jason receiving a sword from an old man. But that doesn't feature in any of the recorded stories, uh, well, not that I've been able to locate, so we're not quite sure where that story fits into the into the bigger picture. But basically, there are four scenes from the story of Jason and the Golden Fleece. Um, and I think as well, I've, the more I've read about this quest, the more fascinating it is. It's such a good story. And it's a story of him overcoming all odds to eventually become the king. It was his rightful place. Um, but also, he... He ends up marrying um, Medea, who is the daughter of this king who sent him on this quest. Um, and it, apparently I've read that it's because she was Cupid um, fired his arrow at her and she fell in love with him. And so she helped him. So it's a bit of a love story as well. And I don't know if that's why the family chose that story, because the ceilings have got um, cherubs um, and putty all over them. And it's a real romantic ceiling there is a cupid up there and i wonder whether there's a link there um as to why they chose that story although it does end quite horribly i think um 
Medea in the end, I think they go and they get banished because she's a sorceress and people don't um, don't really take to her where he becomes king and they go to a, I can't remember what the other place is that they go to, um, but Jason agrees to marry somebody else and she's obviously heartbroken and jealous and she kills him and their children and goes and marries Achilles and it's just an incredible story <laughs> so I'm not surprised you would want to put that on your wall and talk about it because it really does capture your imagination so Jane what do the tapestries look like uh, for me one of the most fascinating pieces is the border across the top of them which is these lovely swags and flowers um, and it's a bit that's quite lost because it's right up at the top of the ceiling uh, and just hidden from view uh, just incredibly fascinating pieces of work for anyone who's interested in needle crafts in uh, fabric work textiles they are just magnificent pieces to go and see and what functions did the tapestries originally serve mainly decorative and uh they are extremely decorative um but they would have also blocked out drafts they would have covered rather um, coarse wall surfaces they would have given the room a, a, a richness as well as warmth but also i think a talking point for visitors for the family and because many tapestries of this period um, depict either mythological or biblical or historical themes they would have also been something perhaps used uh, for teaching children, uh, for for sort of showing the level level of culture within the family, um, so they 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 cover a, a range of purposes: some decorative, some functional, some concerned with the with the status of the family and how educated and informed it was. Alison, can you explain a little bit about the technique of how these tapestries were woven? Yes, so they are woven on a loom. Um, the loom would have been what's called warped up. So wool warps would have been wound around two beams under tension. And then wool and silk wefts would have been inserted through those warps by a team of weavers following a design that is drawn out on what is called a cartoon, which is a large drawing of the, the design that is to be, to be woven. Um, the weavers would have started at one side of the tapestry and worked across it, except it would have been turned the other way. So they are not woven from what we see as the bottom up, but from one side to the other, and then turned when they are displayed. And the reason that's done is that you can be, you can get a great deal more detail into the woven design if you are working in that direction. And that would have been their aim to put in as much detail as possible. They're woven from wool and silk. So the colored areas are wool uh, and the areas that are now cream and beige are silk. Um, sadly, a lot of the silk has actually dropped out over the years because it degrades very much more quickly than the wool. And in a lot of areas, the wool has, the, the silk has disappeared completely and been replaced with some repair stitching. But originally those silk areas would have had a lot of sheen and gloss and really would have stood out within the design. Um, so it's lost something of its, its quality uh, because of that. 
Um, and that there, there would have been a lot of silk. There is a lot of silk woven into the fabric, which suggests that they were um, of a particular quality, of a high quality originally. So they function as, I guess, a kind of cultural capital and like sort of social and economic capital as well, all literally woven kind of into these tapestries. Um, so even if they were bought secondhand, would they still have been expensive items to buy? Are we thinking about something here that also confers a sense of, um, you know, kind of luxury and wealth on the people that own these tapestries? Um, ab absolutely. So because they took a long time to make, because the training of weavers uh, took place over many years, they they would have been an expensive item to purchase, particularly if you were purchasing a set, not just one, but actually in this case, four or five or six or whatever it was. Um, and yes, they would have represented a big investment and then been something that the family would have wanted to show in order to demonstrate their, their wealth. Um, that they could afford to have not just functional wall coverings, but actually something that was um, complex and interesting and made of, of expensive materials. And Jane, can you explain a bit about how the tapestries are displayed at Astley Hall? If we come to see them, what can we expect to see? Okay, they, the tapestries are hung in the drawing room, which is uh, the main uh, lounging area, I suppose, for the families when they live there. It's just off the Great Hall. It's a large square room. As you step through the door, we have tapestries all, all the way along the left wall, a small portion on the wall facing you, and then to your right, all the way along that wall. The rest of the wall space is a fireplace and windows. So really, it takes up a significant amount of space in that one room. And as part of the conservation work, you discovered a range of really bright colours on the back of the tapestries. How would you describe them? Well, I think I think when people look at tapestries in historic houses, they see a lot of blue and brown. Uh, and it's, uh, many of the public think that that's how they were originally, that they were these very muted colours. And in fact, that's not the case. They're extremely bright colours. So we've got bright pinks and purples and greens. And... Green particularly is a colour that changes over time on tapestries. And that's because um, it would have been created by dyeing with a blue dye and then a yellow dye. And unfortunately, the yellow dye is very much more fugitive to light than the blue. So it is lost over time, resulting in anything that was green becoming more and more blue. Um, and that's what we see on the front. But on the back, that green is retained along with colours like pinks and purples that now on the front are very beige and, and brown. And not only the colours very bright, but the definition of the design is very strong because of these the, the, the colours being very uh, clearly distinguished from each other. Um, so it looks a very different um, tapestry on the back. That's so fantastic. Amy, are you able to sort of take this information about what's on the back and convert it for information for visitors? Like what are you gonna what are you gonna do with this information? Yeah, so um we've just um reopened to the public last year after a huge um renovation project. And as part of that we looked at the visitor experience. So at the moment we've got interpretation throughout the house um, that's told through the voices of the people who once lived there 
Um, and it is quite restrictive because it is just um, sort of panels that you can read that people do want and we want that voice and it's lovely. Um, and, but we've also now put together this 3D tour. Um, it's with a, a university, with a student who's working on a project. And the 3D tour is going to enable people to walk into the rooms and click on these objects so that they can get more information and more of that visual um, evidence that the visitors just wouldn't normally see. Um, so we're hoping that we can put that onto this 3D tour and also show maybe videos of people weaving so that you can see the process and just how skilled the people were who, who made those at the time. And Jane, what is it about the tapestries that's so enthralling? I think they're just such magnificent pieces of work. Um, when you look at the sheer size of those pieces of work, realise that they were made 350 years ago and they had the skill to create such intricate uh, pieces that tell that story. It's really quite staggering. Now, out of the four tapestries, Amy, what is your favourite part? OK, so I, I really love... Um, the fact that they connect to those people that lived at the hall and the fact that they chose that story, you know, they, they purchased that and they wanted to show that. And I think it's a really tangible piece of evidence that can connect us to their taste, their styles, their preferences. So to why did they choose that story? Um, why did they want that in their house? Um, and I think it just shows that they were trying to keep up the fashions, um, world power status, that kind of thing. Um, and in particular, I really love, and I know Alison said a lot then about the colours on the back. A lot of the colours that remain on the front are Jason and his red cloak. That seems to have maintained its vibrance through the, the period. So I really love those colours and that you can still see those from the front as the family would have seen them um, almost 400 years ago. It's clear that tapestries like these spectacular examples played many important roles in the past. I wanted to find out about the contemporary art of tapestry weaving, so I spoke to Aruna Reddy. Aruna is a largely self-taught tapestry artist who came to the practice later in life. We talked about how important needlework can be for mental health and the innovative use of materials in her work that she gets from very unexpected places. Hello, I'm Aruna Reddy. Um, I'm retired. I worked as an HR professional for about 20 years. And um, in the last eight years, I've been weaving, teaching in adult education, teaching young people with learning disabilities, and exhibiting my work, doing demonstrations, community demonstrations. In the eight years that I've been working, the last four, I've been looking after my mum, and then more recently, doing full-time caring for my mum with the carers coming in to help out. And in between all of that, actually doing some weaving. And I'm quite amazed at how much has actually been, I've actually done. And, uh, and I actually managed to exhibit work in between all of that. So it's kept me going. And uh, I think art and creativity is just amazing to keep you going because it just takes you away from the ordinary and the mundane. And I think it's it's saved me, I think, you know, because looking after somebody 24-7 is hard work and quite exhausting. So 
but my art has been my savior. So I'm very pleased to have that skill and that ability to be able to be creative. And that's a wonderful thing for me. Can you tell me about your journey to becoming a tapestry artist? Where did you learn? Right. Well, my journey to tapestry weaving was a rather long and circuitous route because originally I started out as a printed textile designer. I worked in a couple of studios and then I became unemployed and I was temping for a while. And then I ended up in the uh, London Marriage Guidance Council, which is now Relate, uh, doing admin work. And um, I did it for about two years. I quite enjoyed it, so I hung out for two years. And then um, I decided I needed to go back to design. I don't know whether that was a good or a right or wrong decision, but I did do that. And uh, I ended up in an interior design company, um, but it wasn't designing. I ended up selling their fabrics. And um, I do have to say, <laughs> I was not very good at it and I didn't really enjoy it. So I left. <laughs> um, so and then again, it was another spell of unemployment and temporary uh, temping work. And while all that was going on, I um, dabbled in weaving, loom weaving, tapestry weaving, embroidery, crochet, knitting, and I did a lot of sewing. I did a lot, I sewed a lot of my own clothes. And with crochet, I started off, um, somebody taught me while I was on holiday in Cape Town, and um, we'd go to the beach in the morning, and in the afternoon, we were expected to have a nap. And of course, 10 year olds don't do naps, do they? <laughs> Uh, so the lady of the house decided to make us use our time usefully and productively. So she taught us how to we to crochet, and um, I'm ever so grateful to her ever since. You know, I, I love crochet, and uh, and then I did all ad hoc um, tapestry classes, and then somehow ended up mainly in in the Sussex area for some reason. So I don't know why, but I can't remember where they were. But um, yeah, I did a lot of ad hoc things and, and basically self-taught. And then I did courses at West Dean later on. So yeah, that's where that's where I am at. And do you have an earliest memory of seeing tapestry or textile art? Oh, oh my goodness, yes. Um, my earliest memory was when my mum went to visit her friend of hers and she took me along with her. And um, she had this uh, single metal bed frame, which she had warped up. So it was a three foot by six foot metal frame warped up with um, about three or four inches of weaving and she said it was her going to be her life's work and I thought oh my goodness me you know 16 year old life's work is a very very long time you know and I thought she would do it in, in that time and uh, it kind of stuck with me that's my earliest recording or memory of um, tapestry weaving Oh, and it's hung funny. around and um, I kind of, I think I've, I've kind of come back to it now. So, yeah, that's where it came from, really. What are the inspirations for your work? The inspirations for my work? Well, my, mine is an urban environment. So, you know, it's the buildings, it's glass, it's reflections, it's the parks, my garden, paving stones, marks on the ground, uh, magazines, um, newspapers, posters. It's just all around me, really. It's just a case of looking and see what uh, sparks up your imagination. I mean, I had some marks on the uh, on the ground, you know, when they spray marks for for the utility companies making marks on the ground, and you know, I looked at some of that and it looked like the, the weird writing, 
and uh, I actually did a weaving from it, a, a, a kind of wrapping and 3D effect. So yeah, it, it's just all over the place, really. So there's nothing specific. I mean, I'm not a country person, so it's uh, not countryfied. It's all urban, I'm afraid. Um, That's lovely. Yeah. Um, can you talk me through the process of creating a tapestry from start to finish? Right. Uh, well, I, I work in two ways, really. Um, I either if, if there's a theme, then then I work within that theme in terms of doing some research, doing some drawings, doing some sketches, and then deciding on the one that would be suitable to translate into a tapestry. And once I've done that, I then do a cartoon to the full scale and size of the finished weaving. And then I warp up my frame and I do a little bit of I do about an inch of weaving. And then I attach the cartoon to the weaving, to, to that little bit of weaving. And then I mark the warps up with a, a black Sharpie pen and then weave within those shapes. And that's a more controlled way of working. And it's a lot easier and it's in, in a way it's quite quick as well because you know what you're doing and it's all there. You've got the colours, you've got the, the, the yarns and you just, just go with it and just weave. Uh, the, the other issue then becomes, you know, the design process, the techniques and all the stumbling blocks that you come across it while you are weaving. So sometimes you may have to unpick some work. Sometimes you've got to readjust the design as you're weaving. Um, and it's always problem solving as you're working. So, you know, it's a very absorbing process. You can't think of anything else, you know. So it's just, you just focus on that piece of work and you just keep working until you get to the end. And then, you know, you cut it off and then you've got the bits about sewing the ends in. If there are any slits that you have in the weaving design, you've got to sew those up unless it's going to become part of the design. So, yeah, it, it's... Um, it's a long draw. I think the I think designing is the biggest issue really for for tapestry weavers. It's getting the right design that you want to weave, and it is weavable to do. Uh, and then you know what kind of techniques you're going to use, uh, whether it's going to be a 3D effect, or it's going to be very plain and flat. And it's and then whether you're going to blend colors, you're going to hatch in colors. It's all sorts of things that uh, go into you know thinking about designing and then thinking about actually uh, executing the work. Uh, and the other way that I work is a very ad hoc way and I just sort of like warp up and I get really excited and um, I just I weave a little bit and then I add bits to it. I do some whipping and some wrapping and I, I put knots and textures and little bits hang out. And so and I'm designing as I'm going along and, um, and, and there the, the process is a lot slower because I'm thinking at each stage of how to do something, whether the texture is going to work, whether the color is going to work, whether I need a bit of plain area or not. So it takes longer, but it's great fun. And, and I do like the idea of textural work and like a 3D effect and a relief coming out of your warps. And, and um, yeah, I find that quite exciting. But then, you know, one minute I like the textured bits. And then after a while, I think, oh, just like a nice piece of plain, calm, gentle work, <laughs> you know, um, and, and that's exciting as well. Then I think, oh, no, maybe I could have a little lump and a bump here or a little knot here or a little wrap here. And then, you know, I've got to just stop myself from that because this is a different piece of work altogether. So, But, you know, each piece informs the next piece of work. So, you know, while you're designing, other ideas are bubbling away in your head. 
so you know you've always got something going on in your head about design and, and uh, images yeah and i'm particularly interested in your innovative use of materials can you tell me a bit about using things like cordyline leaves paper and recycled materials as well okay yeah uh the the materials i use i mean apart from wool linen, cotton and silk the natural fibers I came across plastic carrier bags when I went to the hyperbolic crochet exhibition at the Hayward Gallery quite a few years ago. And this, the woman there was cut up this plastic bag, made a long strip of plastic. And I mean, and I thought, oh, great. And then I came home and I actually did some crochet with it. And um, while I was recuperating after an operation, my mother gave me a job to do. It was my occupational therapy to do a wall hanging for her using these plastics. And I just um, crocheted tubes so that they looked like stalactites uh, in, in using tap, uh, Tesco bags and Marks and Spencer's bags and co-op bags and even Sainsbury's bags. And, uh, and that was really quite good fun to do. So while I was sitting in the sun, I was just busy crocheting these tubes. And then I have used it in a weaving and I've used, again, all the shopping bags that I've used, um, Argos bags, and every bag I could find. And then they also use netting from fruit bags, you know, fruit and vegetable bags, you get the nets. Yeah, yeah. I've used that as well, but that's a very messy business because every time you cut, you get all these little bits all over the place. But if you twist it, you get a very lovely sheen to it. And um, that looks really lovely on when you weave with it. And um I, I use it. Uh, I, I use it as a, um, a technique called sumac, and you get lovely little bumps and ridges as you go along. So that's quite a good way of using it, and I've used that as well. Um, paper. Uh, I mean, I, I, I started spinning uh, a few years ago. Um, I'm not a great spinner, but I spin because I wanted to use paper, and I spin paper on a drop spindle, and you've got to tear the paper rather than cut it. Um, and I've um, spun paper and I um, there was a pile of newspapers at the station one day and I just loved the colours of it and the patterns that it created and when I picked it up and opened it out it was a picture of King Kong the latest movie of King Kong <laughs> and it was amazing so I, I got it. It, was a, so it was the A3 sheet of paper and I um, just tore strips, spun it and then wove with it. So I, I kept the color sequence going and I created a six inch piece of weaving. And it's completely different because the, 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 the King Kong would have orange and black and gray and yellow and, and the bits of pink in it as well. And it just came out in something completely different. I mean, it's beautiful, but completely different to King Kong. So that's um, what I've done with paper. And then I've just used the white margins of paper and have spun that and you know the, the white can, can change quite a lot and, and discolor over time so I've done a piece with just the white and it just looks very different and then all the different colors you get in the newspaper you know extracted those and spun those and then just woven little squares of those colors so you know there's, there's quite a lot you can do with paper really that sounds so fascinating. And have you used cordyline leaves as well? Yeah, like yeah, organic yeah. Organic yeah. material. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm 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 a fair weather gardener. I only go out when it's good. <laughs> so last spring I went out and was looking at what I had to do for the summer, and there were all these cordyline leaves in the garden. So I picked them up and I and I kind of split them and tried to. 
twist them, but because they were so dry, they snapped. So I soaked them and uh, then stripped them and plied them. And because it was so hot in the summer, you know, the water in the bath was warm, you know, which was really quite quite good for me because I don't like messing about in cold water. So I, I kind of made about like over 10 meters of, of cordyline uh, cordage. And then I wove a small piece and I just did some plain weave on a linen warp because it was almost the same color as the cordyline. And uh, it didn't look right. So I did what they call an eccentric weave, which had curves and lumps and bumps. And so you could see the color of the cordyline more easily. And um, it just, you know, it, it, it just showed it off to its, to its best because you had the, the, the greens came out as light browns and beiges and the red cordyline came out as a very dark brown. And um, so I think this summer I'm going to do more cordyline and I want to do a larger piece. Well, large for me is about 10 centimeters, 10 inches um, in eccentric weave. And uh, I think that might be quite exciting, really, to do that. It sounds very exciting, really exciting. And can you tell me a bit about the British Tapestry Group? How long have you been a member? I've been a member for about 10 years now. And really, they uh, their aim is to promote tapestry weaving as a contemporary art form. And uh, to, and we have exhibitions every other year. We had one at the Whitchurch Silk Mill in Hampshire last year, and then two years before that at the Stables Gallery in Richmond. And it's just, it's just fascinating to see what people do. I mean, there's just so many different ways of interpreting images and different styles of weaving. And uh, and when we're there, we always do demonstrations and people do come in, are very, very interested and curious and fascinated by what we do. And you know, the kids absolutely love it. I mean, I did one demonstration where this child, I, I usually warp up cards and give, give them to children to do. And one child made her mum wait for two hours until she finished the piece of work. She wouldn't leave it until, you know, she finished and cut it off and took it home with her. Aww. So, you know. And it's sort of trying to catch them while they're young, you know, um, plant the seed, I think, you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it would be wonderful if you could choose a piece or two of your work to really describe in detail. Well, I've got two pieces. One's a really old piece of work. Um, and that, again, it is all knots. And I've got some plastic in it. But you know the binding uh, uh, plastic that you get on boxes? I've used that. And then I've made some knots and I've also used the um, orange and red net bags, which I twisted and I've used as a sumac. And it's in, in oranges, uh, two shades of orange, uh, an ochre, two shades of green, lime green and a, and a uh, grass green. That is three and then like a viridian green. And it's just a very abstract pattern. Um, and it, 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 you know, it, it's quite exciting really you know sometimes you put work away and you think oh my god I don't like it and then when you look at it two years later you think oh my god how did I manage to do that and um, I think this is one of those pieces where um, because I, I, I discovered these knots and I was just using them in everything that I had and um, it, it's, it's rather a fun piece so I really like that bit and it's all done in and the wool it's, it's a, I, I tend to use young rug wools and I bought a whole load from Wilton Carpets many years ago, and I've still got lots of it. I'm, Ooh, I'm working my way through it. So, um, <laughs> and then I buy ad hoc bits and pieces uh, when I go to stash sales, basically. So again, it's all it's all about recycling stuff and reusing things. Even my frames I've got out of a skip, 
and I've sanded it down and it's been a bit wobbly just put brackets in them to just you know firm them up a bit otherwise yeah I don't tend to buy new things but I try to recycle as much as I possibly can lovely that's such a fantastic ethos that's that's brilliant I love it I love that you found your frame in a skip that's amazing oh, absolutely yeah, yeah. I went to knock to the man's store and I said could I have those skips please and he said yes that's great <laughs> Oh, and at work, you know, at work, people, whenever they, they, I sort of became the recycling lady, so anybody had anything they were going to throw away, they said, check it with Aruna first. If, you know, she wants it, give it to her. You know, <laughs> no. so I got quite a few bits and bobs from there. So it's a case of getting around to using them. Um, and the thing is, you know, I, because I don't do work in, in a series, I just do things as I, as it comes along or what interests me or what excites me or, you know, there's this itch to do it. So I've just got to do it. So it's never a sequential series of work. And, and that's OK with me. You know, I'm not, I like the idea of serendipity as well. You know, things happen and I'm happy with it. So it's, it's quite good. But the other piece of work that I've got is um, I did that last. Uh, that's my latest piece of work. I did that last Christmas. Uh, well, November, October, November for the because I also belong to the London Guild of Spinners, Weavers and Dyers. And they have a competition every Christmas and it's a themed event. And this was a theme that we chose, which was um, an event from last year, which would have been 2021. And I went to the Eileen Agar exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery. Oh, fantastic. And um, there's one painting that I liked. It was um, and I think I, I liked it because it lent itself towards tapestry a lot because of the shapes that you had in it. And it felt like it was in like four quarters of that painting. And I took one corner and um, it had triangles, had circles, and it had uh, straight lines. So I thought, and, and it had lots of curves. I thought, I, you know, that's ideal for tapestry weaving. You know, those are your basic shapes. Um, but what I didn't want to do was to buy yarn to match those colors. So I uh, used the colors I had and I kind of matched the color values to, to the painting. Mm -hmm. And and I worked in that way, and and um, um, and then I did some wrapping and some did some little bit of three D elements to it, relief elements to it, and I did sumac as an outline. And I mean, you know, the the wrapping that I did when I did it the first time round, I wasn't happy with it, so it was white and it it was too stark a color. So I put a bit of beige into it and redid it. But I twisted the yarns before I wrapped round, so it kind of had a smoother effect and it looks much better, I thought. And I did a lot of blend. There's a bit of blending in there, and I put a bit of sparkle in it as well. And um, yeah, it, it worked really well. It, it it's uh, not my normal colours, I do have to say. Uh, it was slightly out of my comfort zone, and and that's a good thing. You know, you've got to come out of your comfort zone now and again because <laughs> otherwise, you know, it gets a bit too tedious and boring. Because I like bright, rich, vibrant colours, and this was cool blues and navy and green. Because I find greens a very, very difficult colour to work with and to get it to match. It's it's I find it I don't find it easy. But, you know, every now and again, I've got to do something with green and um, and it's got blues and greys and it's got a bit of beige and um, ochre and a rusty uh, yeah, ochre and a creamy beige. So those are the colours that I've used and a very light, soft um, olive green uh, in there as well. So it's um, and I've done some outlining with uh, with um, uh, sumac. So, yeah, that, that that's that, that's what the piece that I've done last year 
Well, I'm, I'm doing a piece now, which I decided because during COVID, I did a piece called One Inch a Day, and it's about seven inches and 18 weeks. So it was 18 inches long. And I got to a point where I got tired of doing that. So I, I, I left it at that. And then I decided this well, in December, November, I'd do two inches a day. And um, so I, I kind of warped it all up to 14 inches. And uh, I didn't quite get my sums right. So I've had to rejig and re readjust my thinking on it. So I'm going to do it as a, I'm calling it a winter. I'm calling it winter. And I'm just going to do no, December, January, February. And I've used very cold, wintry colours, so greys and blues and pinks, soft pinks. And um, it's looking very nice. It's, very, it's all very flat and looking very nice. So I'm going to do a spring. And spring is going to be sort of curls and, and sort of things unfurling and rounded shapes, I think. And then obviously summer and autumn, I haven't got that far in the thinking of those. But that spring is going to be the next one. You can find the glorious mid-17th century tapestries discussed at Astley Hall in Chorley, Lancashire. They also feature in the Lancashire Textile Gallery, a collaboration between Gawthorpe Textiles Collection, the University of Central Lancashire and the British Textile Biennial, with contributions from museums and archives across the county. Head to LancashireTextileGallery.com to find out more about its changing programme of collections, exhibitions and artist commissions. The British Textile Biennial 2023 runs from the 29th of September to the 29th of October, exploring the environmental impact and regenerative potential of textiles and fashion. You can find out more on Twitter, at Textile Biennial, and Facebook and Instagram, at British Textile Biennial. See you next time.